You're listening to Hebrews to Revelation, Lesson 2. These online lectures and study guides have been created to provide listeners all over the world the opportunity to receive theological resources online for free. Gifts received from supporters like you help us continue this exciting work. Please partner with us so that millions all over the world can continue to receive and share in the life-changing message of the gospel. Click on the Give Now button on our homepage. That's worldwide-classroom.com. Thanks for your support. Well, I want to move on to something very different, and that is I would like to talk about the social backgrounds of early Christianity. Now, I want to do this because it is beneficial to understand, when we read the New Testament, the problems that the books were addressing. For example, a number of the books that we will read are directed to people who are suffering persecution. So it might be helpful to know what that persecution is. And a number of books talk about proper uses of wealth, or they uh, teach uh, biblical paradigms for family living. It helps to understand what the, pre, what the prior paradigms for good family life or bad family life might have been. What did people presuppose in antiquity about family life or how you should use your money? or how you should relate to the powers of the Roman Empire that have the potential to, to crush you. So what I'd like to do is simply introduce you to some aspects of life in the ancient world. And the first of those has to do with socioeconomic life, and I'd like to get another uh, overhead going for you if, if it works. And if my, lights, my light dimmer dims the lights, I want to ask you just to turn to one passage for a moment first. It is uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and the lights... Oh, there we go. That should do it. There we go. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 and following. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul's talking about the people in Corinth who became Christians. He says, Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many were wise by human standards. Not many were influential Not many were of noble birth, but God chose the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. He chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly and despised things that are not to nullify the things things that are so that no one should boast. So then that, that passage is taken by many people to indicate that Christianity was a movement of the lower classes in antiquity, that the average person who was a Christian was kind of poor, an outcast, not very significant in the eyes of the world. And I want to tell you just straight out that that is a misconception. Uh, There is not good reason to believe that that is indeed the case. Now, one reason why people think that about 1 Corinthians chapter 1 is that they have what I'll call the diamond model of the socioeconomic world. The diamond model, which is described as the ideal by Aristotle, So we've got ancient people advocating it. And it's certainly the norm in the West is that there are a few people at the top, there's a large middle class, and then there are a few people at the bottom. Handful, you know, making over, uh, you know, just a tiny number, making over a million dollars a year, and then there's a few more that make 500,000 or 100,000, and then the bulk of people are, you know, somewhere making $40,000 a year, whatever, or 60,000, whatever it is, you know, sort of upper middle class, maybe getting close to 100, and lower middle class, you know, down maybe around, you know, 30 or something. And then there are a few people are just scraping along on next to nothing. 
And we have the idea that the middle class has to be 80 or 90 percent of all the people. But, and then when you say that, not many wise or noble, then you think, oh, well, the Christians were down here at the bottom. But in fact, a better model of the way it ran in antiquity would be to think instead of a pyramid. Maybe I'll just cover this up so it doesn't get in your way. A better model would be that of a pyramid. And the truth is that maybe only 1% or 2% were upper class, and then everybody else was just farther and farther away from the upper class. And that the great mass were not in the middle, but the great mass were near the bottom. So when Paul says not many were noble, not many were wise, not many influential, what he's saying is not that you were all at the bottom, but that most of you were not at the top, which is only saying that most of you are like everybody else. That is to say, only 1% or 2% were indeed at the top in antiquity. Now, what makes me say that? What makes me say, and I guess we could have the lights again uh, for the sake of those who are taking notes. What makes me say that we have a triangle and not a pyramid? Well, for one thing, you just learn about the way things were in the ancient world. Most people were, well, how do I want to put it? Uh, the only time you really talked about class much was the upper class, the equestrian order, and the senatorial order, and so forth. And you just look at the way things ran, and they are a very, very small number of people. And everyone else is simply not upper class. Or you might say they have no class at all. I'll put it a different way. Class is not really the best way of describing antiquity. Class, maybe not even that well in America either. A better way of thinking about the ancient world is simply how much did people have? That is, what, were, what was their grade of living? How much did they own? How much power did they have? How much leisure did they have? And that's a little bit harder to get at. Uh, one, way, one way to get at it, though, is like this. We would think of uh, slavery as the condition that described those who were the lowest class. Now, when we think about slavery, our tendency is to think of American, you know, the wicked act of stealing men and stealing women, taking them from their, from their home country and, and uh, you know, locking them up. And, and if you've read accounts of American slavery in that system, um, you know, slaves had to wear inferior clothing. They couldn't wear the same clothes that other people wore. And if, if a slave and a free person worked side by side, the slave might get one-tenth or one-twentieth as much money. And it was very difficult, almost impossible, to ever get out of slavery in the American scene. And not only America, but other places in the world in the 18th and 19th centuries. It was really very different from that in antiquity. For one thing, you could not tell who was a slave and who wasn't by looking at them. Because it wasn't based on your skin color or your, or your you know, social or cultural background. Uh, you could not tell who was a slave and who was a slave by their clothing. Anybody could wear the same clothing. And in fact, two people who, slave and free, again in antiquity, not America, but in antiquity, working the same job, got the same pay as well. So same pay, same language, same appearance. The only difference was, and it was a real difference, that a slave was not free to relocate whereas the free person was free to relocate. Another indication of how different things were would be that slaves almost invariably bought themselves out of their slavery. Uh, if they lived to maturity, they could earn enough money to buy themselves out. Here's another indication. Slaves sometimes got wealthy enough that they could buy and own other slaves who worked for them. Here's another. 
people sometimes sold themselves into slavery in antiquity because of the advantages that it gave them, which would include job security, the ability to work for a great man, ability to get training for a job, and, of course, if you got paid well, you could buy yourself out any time. Some prominent positions actually uh, demanded that the person be a slave, like city treasurers uh, sometimes had to be slaves because of the danger of just you know, putting the gold in their pockets and running off. And so they had to uh, swear and, and by various means be kept in a certain place. So we, we could think, well, slaves are lower class, and in a sense that's true. But a slave could have been a relatively prosperous person. And in fact, one way of thinking about slavery in the ancient world, I mentioned slavery, I didn't tell you this yet, because some people think, it's very hard to get at it, but some people think that as many as half the people in the Roman Empire were slaves at some point during their life. Other scholars believe that in some cities, maybe half or even more than half of all the people were slaves, all the people in the workforce. Now, I, have a hard, I don't actually believe that myself, but because of the ease with which people bought themselves out. But slavery was very common, but you don't want to think of it as simply everybody who was a slave was lower class. The issue was simply what kind of a job, what kind of skills, and were they headed toward getting their freedom? Uh, back to the Christian movement for a second and the idea that Christians in general were poor. One way of getting away from that idea is to remember which cities Paul visited. Now, what cities? Do you know what? Just name at random some cities that Paul visited to start churches. Okay, he visited Athens. Where else did he visit? Okay, Corinth, Ephesus. Thessalonica, there's one big one we haven't talked about yet. Okay, Rome. Uh, now, do you have a feel for this, for these big cities or small cities? Do you know? They were big cities. Can we just play a little game and, and pretend that Paul was not in the ancient world, but he was evangelizing the east coast of America? Would, Jesus, would Paul have visited uh, Bangor and Augusta, Maine? No. Would he have visited Boston? Yes. Providence? No. New Haven? No. New York City? Yeah. Um, Newark? No. <laughs> Philadelphia? Yeah. Would he have visited Baltimore? Maybe. Washington? That's kind of close enough to Washington radiating influence. Richmond, Virginia? Charlotte? Atlanta? Yeah. Uh, Charleston? No. Uh, Orlando, I know somehow there's this concentration of South Carolinians here. So, just too bad. The answer is no. He wouldn't have gone to Charlotte. He wouldn't have gone to Charleston. North and South Carolinians. Okay. Uh, would he have visited Orlando? Sarasota? Miami? Probably Miami. So, you get the feel. Jesus ordained that his uh, disciples, Paul, Peter, and the others... Uh, went to the centers of the ancient world. They were not always appealing or not, not usually appealing to the small towns, the small villages and so forth. They went to the cities. Why? Well, because they wanted to change the world would be one reason, and you go to the cities. Cities were also centers of trade and commerce. There was more openness to ideas. People were uh, you know, commonly uh, capable of speaking several languages. Almost everybody would have known Greek. Many would have known Latin plus another language or so. Uh, even if they were illiterate, they would probably know two, how to speak two or three 
languages. The very fact that he went to cities would indicate that he went to areas that were generally more prosperous, generally more education, more uh, worldly wisdom, and so forth. Another indication of the level of those who read the New Testament, uh, of those who were saved in the New Testament, is, is the readers. If you look at the books of the New Testament, I know that uh, you don't have a chance to do this in the original languages, except maybe a handful of you. Uh, but if you would look at the letters of the New Testament in the original language, they are, they are they're not high literature, okay? You know, they're not Goethe or, uh, you know, or, or you know, national poet type things. They're not the elite writing for the elite. But they're good, solid, well-written, vigorous books with large vocabulary, with uh, ease with a wide variety of literary structures, ease with large sentences, and uh, dense ideas and dense argumentation. In other words, uh, this would be what we might call the level of good, sharp magazine writing or good, excellent, the, you know, the best level of newspaper writing. It's high quality but written for the ordinary person. So the very idea that it's, it's, it's well done and written carefully to appeal to you know, a broad but fairly sophisticated readership indicates that Christians were not at the bottom of the heap religiously. On the other hand, having said that, I don't want to give the impression that they were upper class or that they were you know, prominent or wealthy or something like that. The very idea that Paul uh, repeatedly states that he was willing to work with his hands he was a tent maker. And, and the commendation to, for example, the Thessalonians, to, they should work with their hands, indicates that he is interested in blessing manual labor. There's actually a debate that went on in antiquity as to whether manual labor was good or whether it was demeaning. And the, and the philosophers used to debate this. And the Epicureans said, no, we should get as far as possible from that because it, it you know, makes our lives vulgar. And the Stoics said, no, it keeps us in touch with the world. And, of course, the rabbis at that, at that time as well taught that everybody should have the ability to work with their hands. When Paul says he worked with his hands, that he made tents, he's staking out a position philosophically, saying that the, the good thing is not to be freed from the burdens of this world. It's good to work in this world. God blesses manual labor, which would have been a powerful message for the ordinary folk who did uh, by and large, work with their hands. So that's just a quick survey of the socioeconomic scene. And what I'd like to do is jump rapidly to the religious scene in the ancient world. In Acts chapter 17, Paul says, when he visits Athens, uh, Sirs, I see that you are very religious. And that would be an apt statement. Now, if you come to a street corner in America, what do you see at the intersection? You see a church. Well, that's sometimes true. What do you see at, at a big intersection between two roads? You see a stoplight. That's right. The stoplight stands sentinel, keeping us from crashing into each other. At least it ordinarily keeps us from crashing into each other. The sentinels that stood in the city of Rome in the year 73 AD, when one historian was doing his writing, were statues to gods. 265 main intersections in Rome in the year 73 AD, written by one of their historians, were guarded by 265 different deities, statues of different deities. You've probably all heard of the concept of the Roman pantheon. The idea was that the uh, various gods 
of the people conquered by the Romans uh, were, were invited in to the house of the gods. Uh, we've conquered you. We want you to honor our gods, especially the emperor. But we'll answer, honor your god too. Just give us a statue. We'll find some room in the back. And we'll acknowledge your deity as well. The spirit of the day was open-minded, shallow. A shallow but broad interest in religion. Um, people would borrow whatever looked or sounded interesting from almost any religion. Uh, the term for that is syncretism. Buying, borrowing, blending different creeds. Putting, it comes from sin together with creeds. Putting different creeds together. The same person could easily be initiated into a half a dozen different religions and could even be a priest in one or two or three religions. Uh, I had an interesting verification or sidelight of this when I traveled to India on a mission trip a couple of years ago. In India, there are tens of thousands of deities that are honored in Hinduism. And so the, the spirit of syncretism and polities and pervades. We had, uh, on, our, on my trip, we had a little, I don't know, a servant, I guess would be a word for it, a cook who came and cooked for us, cooked our meals, and you know, kind of cleaned up the place a little bit, such as he could. And I asked at one point, you know, whether he was a Christian or a Hindu, uh, or uh, some other religion perhaps. And the answer was, well, we think he's a Christian. I said, what does that mean? You think he's a Christian? Well, he comes to church sometimes. But we also have seen him occasionally by the road, dressed up as a Hindu holy man. And you can tell a Hindu holy man because they have cow dung smeared in their hair uh, and, you know, kind of a, a brown stripe going down the middle, parted down the middle. That's the truth. And uh, so, you know, we spotted him with his little, you know, his little shawl and the cow dung and a little plate where you could donate money for wisdom. And they said, you know, what are you doing? His name is Budgeon. Budgeon, what are you doing here? I thought you were a Christian. He says, well, you know, I've got to make a living any way I can. That was his sincere answer. And that fits. That answer fits. In India, where polytheism is, is everywhere. And if there are hundreds of gods and you kind of like five or six of them, why not be involved with five or six? Now, that was the mentality that they had. Now, one of the crucial elements was emperor worship. And maybe I could give a little, just a little picture that might explain what emperor worship was like. Uh, the idea was, remember I had this little tr uh, triangle or, or pyramid the upper classes and the lower classes, and sort of at the very top of the upper class was the emperor, who had the ability to rule the world and thousands of people at his beck and call, and he was thought to have the spark of the divine. So he was the greatest of all men, but that's not all. He was more. He was also, uh, we might say there's another world, the world of the gods, and the gods are kind of like people. They have classes and ranks, too. And you have the lower gods and you have higher gods. Maybe this isn't the best way to depict it. But, you know, at the top you have Zeus and so on. And then you have these lower gods with less, lesser rank. The emperor was generally conceived as being a low god or a really high man. The highest of the mortals or the lowest of the gods. Now, this business of emperor worship was a very useful thing. Just think about it. Not only is he the emperor, so he can put you in jail or reward you or punish you, but for goodness sakes, he's a god. So we certainly should pay attention to what he has to say. You've perhaps heard of Gibbons, who wrote um, the, the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. He said this in one place. I think I have it in your notes. He said, 
under the political value of various gods, under polytheism, the various modes of worship which prevailed in the Roman world were all considered by the people as equally true, by the philosopher as equally false, by the magistrate as equally useful. It's useful to believe that your emperor is also your god. It tends to instill obedience. So you have the emperor in there. You have other people. You have, uh, you have very little ethical content to any of these religions. We must not think of ancient religions like ours. A body of teaching, a body of doctrine. The prayers, there are various prayers, hundreds of prayers left over found from antiquity. They do not have ethical aspirations. They basically plead with the gods. And when I say the gods, some of the prayers will, will invoke the names of dozens, and not just low dozens, like two dozen, but five or six dozen gods will be named in one prayer. Almost as if to say, if there's anybody listening, here's what I want. You know, Gods are invoked, and, and just for, for health and for successful business ventures successful childbirth, just just please give me, oh God, give oh gods, give me these things. Very little ethical content. Maybe the maybe it's very clear with regard to emperor worship. Now what was emperor worship like? Well everybody had to do it. It was required. You had to do it maybe one or two or three times a year. And when you went, you simply uh, dropped a little pinch of incense on an altar and you offered a prayer. Prayer could have two forms. You could pray to the emperor, you could pray for the emperor. Now, most people kind of didn't make any distinction, but after a while, uh, when Christianity was found out and its unwillingness to bow to the emperor, Christians would say, well, we'll pray for, but not to. And they got wise after a while and said, no, you pray to, not for. But apart from Christians, it was very easy going. In fact, it, it involved almost nothing. You offered a pinch of incense, you prayed and you left. That was it. You had to do it a couple times a year to show your loyalty to the emperor. Most of the emperors did not take this very seriously. And one reason they didn't take it seriously was because the Romans looked down on it. And they thought it was, uh, showed you know, sort of too much pride and seizing of power. Uh, there were a few emperors in the New Testament era. Actually, there were two in the New Testament era that took it seriously. One of them was named Domitian. Now, the best way, I think, to illustrate uh, the case would be for me to just tell you one thing. As I get older, I do this less and less. But I still do play occasionally basketball with students here on campus or play uh, volleyball or play tennis with students here on the campus. And when I do, maybe, maybe especially sports like volleyball or basketball, somebody's open. You know, it doesn't really work to say, pass me the ball, Dr. Doriani. See, by the time you're done saying that, you're covered. So, you know, what am I going to call you? And my rule of thumb is if I've got sneakers on, I'm Dan. And if I've got a suit on and a tie and black shoes that are uncomfortable, then I'm Dr. Doriani. Well, what do you call the emperor if you grew up with him or if you work around him? Do you call him, you know, your godness or something like that? Um, no, usually you called the emperor by his first name. And a lot of the emperors are kind of low-key about it. Claudius, it was the TV series. I, Claudius, you know, who had, you know, differing reputations depending on who you're reading. When he died, he was kind of witty. He said, I fear that I'm becoming a god. 
which meant that the good emperors never claimed deity during their life, but after they died, it was ascribed to them. It could be ascribed to them publicly. So, you know, he's saying, I never took that seriously. Okay. Domitian did take it seriously. And when people said to Domitian, hey, Dom, what should we call you? Uh, Domitian said, call me my Lord and my God, and if you don't, I'll kill you. That was Domitian. There's also uh, a man named Caligula, whom a lot of you would have heard of, emperor from 37 to 41, also known as Gaius and Caius. Don't ask me why he had three different names, but he did. Caligula, uh, who was himself deposed, among other things, for insisting on his own deity. At one point during his life, he uh, heard from somebody, you know, the Jews uh, don't have any images of you in Jerusalem, and they aren't bowing to you or worshiping you or anything. He said, oh, really? Well, let's get some in there right away. And they got some in there right away, or started to get them in there right away, and some Jews found out about it. And the Jews went out to meet the delegation with soldiers that were bringing the images of the emperor. And uh, they basically just parked themselves. They're kind of a sit-in, you might say, or passive resistance. They also stopped tending their crops. They said, as long as you're going to move these images in, we will not farm. We'll let, we'll let our crops rot. And they, you know, the, the Syrian legate, who was in charge of the expedition, where the troops said, well, then you'll all starve. They said, fine, we don't mind starving. We'd rather starve to death than worship the emperor. And uh, now, it didn't actually transpire to their story. But Caligula, when he heard about this, said, well, then kill them all. And, you know, if, if uh, his order had been carried out, they would all, all tens or even hundreds of thousands would have been slain. Through a marvelous providence, uh, Caligula was actually overthrown and killed before the order could be carried out uh, so that their lives were spared. But that's, that would be the exception. Now, the unfortunate thing is that Christians during this period were known, again, to be unwilling to participate at all in emperor worship. The Jews, because they had often taken a stand against emperor worship, and because they had an ancient religion and a religion in a narrowly defined area, the Jews were sort of let off the hook. As long as they would be loyal and as long as they would pray for the emperor, that was okay for the Jews. But they didn't like the way the Christians did it. The Christians were new. They were growing rapidly. They weren't all Jewish. And those are all things they were kind of leery about. And so they would sometimes try to force the Christians to worship the emperor so there's emperor worship. There were lots of deities. Uh, probably the, the most uh, popular religion was known as a group of religions known as mystery religions. Mystery religions were a different thing. Uh, they, uh, first of all, were much more involved than emperor worship, much more involved than just offering a pinch of incense and a prayer. They were kind of like clubs. They were voluntary associations. People gathered together to go through rituals, uh, maybe a little bit like the Masons or some other thing like that, where they'd have elaborate rituals and they would become brothers and they would have maybe societies of brotherhoods and they would share meals together and uh, share secrets of one kind or another. And, and it became really quite a form of bonding for many people. It was, it was physical. It, was, uh, it, was, it appealed to the senses. It was glamorous. It had a lot of mystery. The goal was union with the gods but without an ethical content. Now, what I want to do is uh, kind of shift gears a little bit and, and read you an account of an initiation of a priest into one of these religions. And I will even invite you, because it's kind of hard to picture this here 
with, you know, blackboards and screens and a man dressed in a very 20th century or 21st century suit. You're getting, getting to about that time. What I want to do is read you an account, and I'll invite you to close your eyes and picture this. You don't have to close your eyes, but I'll invite you. Now, if you're sleepy, you can't close your eyes. But if you're wide awake, you can close your eyes and picture this. It's initiation, initiation of a priest into a Mithra cult. The high priest, who is to be consecrated, is brought down underground in a pit dug deep, marvelously adorned with a fillet, binding his festive temples and chaplets, his hair combed back under a golden crown, wearing a silken toga caught up in a gabine girding. So there he is underground, beautifully dressed, but in a hole in the ground. Over this, they make a wooden floor with wide spaces woven of planks with an open mesh. Picture a lattice work. They then divide or bore the area and repeatedly pierce the wood with a pointed tool that it may appear full of small holes. Hither, a huge bull, fierce and shaggy in appearance, is led, bound with flowery garlands upon its flanks, its horns sheathed, Yea, the forehead of the victim sparkles with gold, and a flash of metal plates colors its hair. Here, as is ordained, the beast is to be slain, and they pierce its breast with a sacred spear. The gaping wound emits a wave of hot blood, and the smoking river flows into the woven structure beneath it and surges wide. Then, by the many paths of the thousand openings in the latticework, the falling shower rains down a foul dew. That is to say, the blood is dripping all over the place. Which the, pee, which, is this, which the priest, buried within, catches, putting his shameful head under all the drops, defiled both in his clothing and in all his body. Yea, he throws back his face. He puts his cheeks in the way of the blood. He puts under it his ears and lips he interposes his nostrils. He washes his very eyes with the fluid, nor does he even spare his throat, but moistens his tongue until he actually drinks the dark gore. Afterward, the servants draw the corpse, stiffening now that the blood has gone forth, off the lattice, and the pontiff, horrible in appearance, comes forth and shows his wet head, his beard heavy with blood, his dripping fillets and soaked garments. This man defiled with the contagions and foul with the gore of the recent sacrifice, all hail and worship at a distance, because profane blood and a dead ox have washed him while concealed in a filthy cave. End reading. Uh, for those of you who are ordained or have observed ordinations, you might compare uh, that to the way it's done in your churches. Now, let me just ask you for, uh, your, can I just ask your impressions? And I don't expect your impressions necessarily to be accurate because you've probably never heard this before in your life, so you may not have a point of reference by which to evaluate. But what, what's your impression? The antithesis of Christian ordination. It is pretty different from Christian ordination, it is indeed. What's, uh, what's different about it? Dirty and dark. Okay, it's dirty and dark instead of light and, and giving... Purity, right. What else? It defiles 
rather than making pure. It involves death rather than life. Homage to a lower creature, perhaps, just the idea of dressing up the bull and making it sparkle and so forth. Yeah. Some people have said, well, it's like Christianity is a blood sacrifice. You know, blood, you know, blood is cleansing or, you know, something like that. But the truth is, it's just a very, it's a one-point superficial similarity, isn't it? Because, among other things, this ritual was enacted every time a priest was, was uh, ordained or initiated is actually the word. How about the sacrifice of Christ? Once for all, a cleansing sacrifice, right? Any other differences you can think of? What strikes you? Would have been quite a show, wouldn't it? Would it have been impressive? <laughs> Doesn't seem like a desirable process. Well, I guess it would be fun for those who are watching who said, you know, I had to go through it, and now I have to go through it too. It sounds like, you know, military people at base training or something, you know. Let them suffer, I suffered, kind of thing. Maybe the biggest thing is the absence of words. There's no explanation. There's no charge. There's no message. There's no ethic. That's the biggest thing, that these rituals are just that. They're, they're just rituals. They're not interpreted. They're not explained. They don't, you know, they don't lead us into holiness or to righteousness or into God. They are so very different. Uh, I have a few comparisons there. Paganism was ritualistic. Christianity is historical. That is to say, once and for all, Christ was sacrificed. And the things that God does, he did once, and then we remember what he did and hark back to it. Uh, Paganism is mystical. Christianity is rational. There is no thought content to this. There are no ideas behind it. Christianity has ideas. It is syncretistic. You could... uh, Blend together ideas from different gods and different cultures. Christianity is exclusive. That's one of the reasons why Christians got in trouble is because they wouldn't participate with other religious uh, services and activities. This one is amoral. It's not necessarily immoral. It's amoral. It has no reference to morality. Christianity, of course, is deeply ethical. This is polytheistic. Christianity is monotheistic. This is manipulative. Ancient mystery religions were manipulative. That is to say, you did things to get the gods to give you things you wanted. You performed rituals to get their attention. Now, sometimes if you really wanted a big favor from a god, you'd offer a costly sacrifice. So he owed you one, or she, the goddess, owed you one. But Christianity is not manipulating God, but God is giving his redemption to his people. So a lot of differences between antiquity and and the ancient religions and Christianity. I'm going to skip over uh, for a moment with just a word or two. Gnosticism, a lot of people talk about Gnosticism. Uh, Really, Gnosticism arose after the first century A.D., and so does not uh, flavor our understanding of the New Testament, although there were just maybe some bare beginnings of Gnosticism. The basic idea of Gnosticism is that you're saved by what you know. By, being, uh, by learning mysterious passwords that will allow you to, to pass through the heavens and into eternity. And that's just a one-sentence, very inadequate description. Philosophical schools, I already mentioned a little bit about working with one's hands. Let me just say that there were two dominant philosophies of the New Testament era. The one was Epicureanism which said that the goodness, the good life is a life of pleasure. Now, that's not the same as hedonism. Epicureans, when they said we seek pleasure, were not seeking 
you know, sex and drugs and rock and roll, okay? They weren't seeking wild self-indulgence. What they sought was a life free from care, refined pleasures. They included mental pleasures, music and poetry, as well as material things and creature comforts. But they did not believe one should simply indulge the flesh. It was pleasures of body and mind. The Stoics had a different approach and probably had a little bit more in common with the New Testament. Their approach was that you they were actually pantheistic and they were very ethical. And some of them, in fact, had an ethic that sounds like a New Testament ethic at a number of points in terms of what was actually required. The motives would differ, of course, uh, entirely. Uh, but the goal was to live in harmony with the universe. The idea was that fate governed the universe that everything was determined in advance. And so what you should do is fit in with what was necessary. And to be self-sufficient, Paul maybe is even playing with that a little bit in Philippians 4.12, where he says, I've learned how to live in plenty and in want. I am sufficient in all things. He uses that, that a word that the Stoics loved. The word is autarkeia, the ability to please oneself. And they thought that was the highest ideal, to be able to take care of yourself and to be happy no matter what happens to you, to be able to fit in and accept it. Now, of course, Paul's idea of, uh, was not true self-sufficiency, but self-sufficiency through Christ. So it's a very different idea in the end. But their, their concept was to fit in with the world, to be wise, to not, to not fight against the flow of your destiny. big idea with them was to do what was fitting as opposed to what is not fitting. And you can hear Paul and James and Peter occasionally talking about that. I think we have time to talk about uh, yet one more item about life in the ancient world, and that is family life. Family life. A family life in the ancient world was very, very different from today. We bemoan the fact that maybe the divorce rate is 50% today, and the people live together so very commonly and freely. The truth is that in ancient Rome, most people never got married at all. Most of the people who got married were those who had enough money or property that you had to worry about how it would be divided up after you died or if there should be a divorce. Now, divorce wasn't common then because people didn't get married at all. But when two people got tired of each other, they just one of them just left. And that was the end of it. Nobody really knows how common that was because the average person didn't keep records. But it seems to have been pretty common. Then today, we rightly, rightly bemoan and bewail and, and become upset. I hope we still get upset about abortion as a scourge in our land. Uh, curiously, in antiquity, they agreed that abortion was a terrible thing. And it was often a crime, viewed as a crime, and people could be punished for killing their children. But they did do something else. They abandoned their children. Now, that seems like they did it exactly opposite the way we do. Today, we would say you can kill an unborn baby, but it's a horrible thing to expose to abandon a baby that's born. Back then, they said, terrible to kill an unborn child, because then if you abort it, it's certainly dead. However, if you abandon it, somebody might pick it up, and therefore the child has a chance to live. Of course, it would live as a slave, or as a menial laborer, or maybe even as a sacred prostitute, which was unfortunately very common in some places in antiquity. Um, it was a common practice, and I'm looking for a page uh, here that I've uh, stapled, that has a letter that a man wrote to his wife about a child that they are about to have. And here it is, of course, on the last page. 
from Hilarion to his wife, Alice. A-L-I-S, if you care. Not the same name we have today. Many greetings. Likewise to my lady, Berus and Apollinarion. Know that we are still in Alexandria. Do not be anxious if they really go home. I will remain here. I beg and entreat you to take care of the little one. As soon as we receive our pay, I will send it to you. If by chance you bear a child, presumably he was gone for a number of months, uh, if by chance you bear a child, if it is a boy, let it be. If it is a girl, cast it out. You have said to Aphrodisius, do not forget me. How can I forget you? I beg you, don't be anxious. Signed and dated. Did you see how casual that was? You know, we're here, we're making money, I'll send you the pay, we'll be back, don't worry. If you have a boy, keep it. If you have a girl, dump it. That's the way it was. Unfortunately, quite a number of girl babies were dropped, and you can see it, that is to say, you know, dropped off or not used. You can see it in the tragic situation where in some places like Corinth, there were thousands, estimates run as high, commonly estimated as high as 8,000. Uh, cult prostitutes who would have been all uh, abandoned girl children uh, who then uh, served the goddess Aphrodite, goddess of love, and was part of that system. Um, you also had, of course, children who died, and as a consequence, there was a shortage of marriageable women. There's actually uh, debates and problems that show because of the absence of marriageable women uh, in biblical times. Let me give you one more thing about daily life. Um, and that is entertainments of the ancient world. Now, we get upset about uh, corrupt entertainment in America and about the uh, you know, violence and sensuality on TV, and we should. But uh, America pales, even as bad as it is, compared to the entertainments of antiquity, and they included the most popular entertainment of them all, which was the gladiatorial shows. I put them in with family living because... Many gladiators were uh, children who were abandoned, and they were, they were taken over to gladiatorial schools. You understand that the gladiatorial battles commonly ended or typically ended in the death of the losing combatant. You also need to understand that in Rome, there were two coliseums that held a total of 300,000 people. It would be possible, not common, but for 300,000 people to be present on one day watching for entertainment, not movies about blood, but the real thing, the real bloodshed. And in fact, sometimes uh, the, sometimes, not one or two or five or ten, but actually hundreds and on a couple occasions, even thousands of gladiators were killed in a single day. Rome had a population of a million. 300,000 might be going to watch this on a given day. Let me just give you one account of this from a little while later. It's about the story. It's actually from Augustine, and the gladiatorial games continued for a long time after, um, after the time of Christ. Uh, it's Augustine talking about his noble friend, Olypius. And Olypius was a good pagan. And Olypius and Augustine had friends who thought that going to the gladiatorial shows was real interesting and entertaining. And Olypius said, no, I'm not interested. I don't want to go. I refuse. I find it degrading and so forth. He would never go. And then one day, it says that his friends dragged him with friendly force into those games. And he said, even if you drag my body into this place, can you fasten my mind and my eyes on the shows? And so he came, he was forced to sit down, and he just sat there with his eyes closed the whole time. They wouldn't let him leave, sort of like daring his friends. Uh, but they wanted to see if he could really pull it off. And so 
They kept him there. The fights are going on. And then it says this. At one point, a mighty roar went up from the crowd and struck Olypius with such force that he was overcome by curiosity. As though he were well prepared to despise the sight and overcame it, whatever he might be, he opened his eyes and was wounded more deeply in his soul than the man whom he desired to look at was wounded in his body. He fell more miserably than did that gladiator at whose shout, uh, at whose fall the shout was raised. It entered into his ears. It opened his eyes. The result was that his spirit was struck down. It Sorry, struck down a spirit that was more bold than strong and that was all the weaker because it presumed upon itself, uh, whereas it should have relied upon you. He goes on to say that Lippius was so caught up in the bloodshed that he then became one of the you know, most rabid fans of the gladiatorial games, went back every time they occurred and carried his friends with him. Until one day, God, by his grace, uh, touched Olypius not with moral resolve, but with spiritual resolve, and he was indeed liberated from it and became again, uh, Olypius did, an adversary of the games. Well, I could give you much more. I have much more in my notes. But this gives you a feel for the world into which the New Testament came. A world dark, very dark. A world that was religious, but a world that did not have light. And beginning next week, we're done with our introductory comments. We'll start talking about the light that comes from the book of Hebrews. See you next week. Thanks for listening to this Worldwide Classroom Lecture from Covenant Theological Seminary. Find more Christ-centered teaching, plus interviews and devotionals at livingchrist360.com.